God has revealed his will and his word. His spirit is alive and moving. And the means by which Christians determine God's will for their lives is based primarily upon the word of God. The spirit is able to work miraculously right here in the New Testament era to give you conviction for sin where you need it, to give you wisdom where you need it. But oftentimes Christians will either wholly dismiss that, completely ignoring the Holy Spirit, revering the Father and reveling in the Word, the Son, but then keeping at arm's length the Holy Spirit of God, or some will depend wholly upon what they believe to be the Holy Spirit and then completely reject the Word of God. Here's the QR code where you can get the cross-references for this study from Judges. Last week, we studied the story of Deborah, where God miraculously delivered his people. Today, we are going to look at the story of Gideon. Gideon is one of the more famous judges. Gideon and Samson seem to get kind of all the attention in Judges. Everybody seems to kind of ignore a lot of the others. But we're going to zoom in on the story of Gideon today. Here's the, the, the QR code for you if you, uh, if you can download your, your cross-reference notes. It's also available at redemptionwashington.com. Just click program. Now, here's cha- Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord handed them over to Midian seven years and they oppressed Israel. Because of Midian, the Israelites made hiding places for themselves in the mountains, caves, and strongholds. So right off the bat, you can see what has set the tone here. All right, you can, you can tell where we're going with this because it all starts right here. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Sin has consequences. Those consequences will be far more dire than you can imagine. They will be far more severe than what was advertised. What sets the tone for all of this is not God neglecting his people, it's his people ignoring him. It's his people doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And that sin has consequences. So the Lord handed them over to Midian. And so for seven years, they are oppressed by Midian. Remember this theme, because this is gonna be important for understanding Gideon. The Israelites uh, made hiding places for themselves. And I want to talk about that concept right there. Have you made a hiding place for yourself? This is the polar opposite of what we're going to see when we study the book of Joshua. They have done the polar opposite of what Joshua did. The book of Joshua opens with God telling Joshua over and over again, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, calling them to go out, calling the Levites to carry the Ark of the Covenant right to the edge of a raging river, calling them to step out, calling them to go to Jericho, calling the spies to go out, moving them forward. And now they're doing the polar opposite. They are retreating. They are cowering. They are hiding. And when we're doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, and we're hiding from the battles that God's called us to, our sin festers there and gets worse. Have you made hiding places for yourself? I want you 
today to the glory of God to obliterate them and to step out and to be strong and courageous as Israel once was and perhaps you once were. Come out of hiding. Are you an undercover Christian in your workplace? Come out of the hiding place that you've made for yourself. Are you intimidated by the Midianites? Are you scared of HR policies about spiritual expression? And so you willingly forfeit your own First Amendment rights as an American citizen, and you, owe, you willingly forego and disobey and ignore the great commission of Jesus Christ, and so you hide the one thing that can save the souls of your coworkers. Be more afraid of God than you are of repercussions for sharing your faith. Come out of your hiding places. Come out of your hiding places. Right? In uh, the book of Numbers, there was this crushing moment. In Numbers 14, verse 5, Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole assembly of the Israelite community. This is when the Back to Egypt committee was speaking up. And then Joshua and Caleb were sitting right there. They had come back with an excellent report of the promised land. And when they hear that there are giants in the promised land, the Back to Egypt committee just seems to overpower Moses. And so Moses falls down in front of them, but Joshua and Caleb stand up and they say, no, we can take these guys. God is able to give us this land. It's no wonder that in the book of Joshua, we see what could be the most prosperous time in Israel's history, really. Like we see the temple constructed under Solomon and it's great, but in the book of Joshua, I think is when they were at the, at the epicenter of God's will for their lives. Because where there was sin, when sin would crop up, they would repent and they would receive the full anointing of God. And when there was a battle to be won, they'd step right into it with strength and with courage. But in the book of Judges, we see the polar opposite. We see the polar opposite. They are hiding away. They are stashed away in caves where it's dark and where they can't be seen. Do you have some sort of secret online alias for when it's dark, when you can't be seen. Who you are in the dark is who you are. You're not defined by your absolute worst moments, but integrity has to count for something. And you can get a good measure of who you are based on who you are in the dark. And the people of God were cowering. They were afraid of the enemies of God, and so they hid. I believe that there are Christians all over Seattle. I really do. I think that there are more Christians than we realize. I think that people post-COVID in general, right, we're seeing growth at the Redemption Church, praise God for that, but that's not the story at, at, at most churches. People have stopped coming in person to church. They've stopped fellowshipping the church. Church has become a product that they consume online rather than the family of God where they serve. And I think that as Christians go into hiding, as they lose that fellowship, they're not exercising their spiritual gifts. They're out of fellowship with the Spirit's communion here at the church. I think that you're gonna see more and more Christians fall asleep spiritually. They're going to just sort of check out spiritually. And I, I, I wanna 
remind us of something. Ephesians chapter five, verse 14. What makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. As I look at Israel hiding from Midian in caves, hiding everything that they do, am I describing you right now? Are you an undercover Christian? Are you a Christian coward? Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Come out of that ugly hiding place. Let the light make everything visible and look at your sin in all of its ugliness. Don't mitigate, don't edit, don't polish, don't excuse. Behold it and confess it all. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Come out of your caves, people of God. We need all hands on deck here. Here's Judges chapter three, verse six. Whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east came and attacked them. They encamped against them and destroyed the produce of the land, even as far as Gaza. They left nothing for Israel to eat, as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For the Midianites came with their cattle and their tents like a great swarm of locusts. They and their camels were without number, and they entered the land to lay waste to it. So Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. When the Israelites cried out to him because of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to them. Now, we don't know the name of this prophet, but we know what he says. He said to them, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you out of Egypt and out of the place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in, but you did not obey me. So in answering the cries of his people from oppressive poverty, God reminded them of all that he had done for them in the past. Isn't it funny how quickly we can forget this? For a minute there, I forgot that God saved my life for free last year. I was, I was feeling down in the dumps a little bit, all right? I was feeling discouraged. I was feeling overwhelmed. And I was just asking God to help me already. And what the Lord laid on my heart to remind me of was like, I did, and I am helping you. We were gathered together as a student ministry by a ridiculously huge bonfire. We taught the Bible study, and I was like, okay, I need to go throw up right now. And I went inside, I was feeling horribly sick. And then that was the week leading up to the Saturday where it was revealed that my appendix had exploded. And it was the Sunday after the Sunday I told you, the Lord's laid Swedish Issaquah on my heart. Well, guess where, guess where your pastor was that Sunday morning? <laughs> Swedish hospital in Issaquah. And the Lord just provided. After Jesse and the kids dropped me off at the hospital, okay, they dropped me off and I, I, like, I hobbled in like a cross between Igor and Ebenezer Scrooge. And the kids found that hilarious. They laughed at me as I hobbled. <laughs> Look at dad, he's dying, that's funny. 
dead dad. <laughs> anyway, I want pizza. It's not an exaggeration. They're like, can we go to Mod? So they went across the street from Swedish Issaquah to Mod Pizza. And who should they see there but a member of the Redemption Church who lives in Bonnie Lake, by the way, and happened to be there and formerly was once in charge of the grant program that helps fund emergency surgeries for people who need help. I had forgotten about that. Like, how ridiculous is that of me? To have forgotten. Like, God saved my life for free. Don't worry, we're all insured and everything now. We're good to go. But in that moment, the Lord actually set it up in such a way that the surgery cost less than it would have if we'd had insurance at the time. And I, it just slipped my mind. I'd just forgotten that God did that. And that was a year ago. Would you take an inventory? Would you consider right now? Would you consider what you may have forgotten? The good things, the outpourings. Isn't it funny how we have the capacity to forget miracles? The devil cannot undo what the Spirit has done. But if he can make you forget that God did it, that may have the same effect. So do an inventory of your heart right now. God reminded Israel of all the things he had done for them. Would you let the Spirit of God remind you now of all the things he's done for you? Especially if you are crying out to him from, for example, in, in a very direct example from the text, poverty. If you're struggling financially right now, would you cry out to God? And would you let him remind you of all that he has done for you? All the ways in which he has provided for you? He has always put food on your table. He has always helped you pay your bills. You are here right now. Everything that you thought would kill you didn't, evidently. Otherwise, we have a zombie problem. Something tells me that God's brought you through everything, hasn't he? If God has just always been faithful to you, would you say amen? Man, he's never, he's never failed to care for his people. He has allowed us to go through difficulty. He has allowed us to suffer, but he's even used our sufferings for his glory. He's allowed us to face temptation, and sometimes we fall flat on our faces in that battle. But then, then, even then, God will use our redemption, our repentance, and our restoration for his own glory. Our failures, our hardships, all of them, they become a part of the beautiful mosaic. They become darker shades in the larger beautiful image that God is painting with our lives. Would you let the Spirit of God remind you now, as he did his people at this point in the book of Judges, of all the great things that he has done in your life over the years that you just forgot about? Now, here's chapter, oops, sorry, I skipped way ahead. Let's continue through chapter six. Here's verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and he uh, this is, uh, let's see. Sorry, guys. Yeah, so Israel became poverty-stricken because of Midian, and the Israelites cried out to the Lord. Uh, he sends a prophet to remind them of everything that he's done. And then take a look at this. The angel of the Lord shows up. The angel of the Lord came, and he sat under the oak that was in 
Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite. His son Gideon was threshing wheat in the wine press in order to hide it from the Midianites. So remember, everybody's hiding out in caves. So you don't, you don't thresh wheat on a wine press. He's doing this because he's hiding. He's using a wine press for something that it wasn't meant for. And he's threshing wheat on something that isn't designed to do what he's doing, but he's doing it because it's a secret. It's a hiding place. He's afraid of the Midianites outside. This is secret wheat that he doesn't want seen. And so he's using a wine press to thresh wheat. It can't be working very well. You need good airflow to thresh wheat. As you beat it against the rock, the chaff is separated and the wheat falls down and you collect it. So he's doing what he can, but he's doing it in hiding. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. There are two schools of thought on this. All right, angel of the Lord, angel of the Lord. There, there's, this, there's this fancy seminary word, it's Christophany. Okay, you hear the word Christ in the suffix Christ, Christophany. Everybody say Christophany. Yes. The Christophany is an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. It's believed that like when Jacob wrestled with God, that that figure with whom he wrestled, that could have been Jesus, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. It is argued by uh, at least one pastor that I know that every single time you see this word angel of the Lord, that that is a Christophany. That is Jesus appearing. But based on what I see in the book of Hebrews in the opening, explaining hierarchically how much higher Jesus is than the angels, I'm more inclined to say that this is a messenger angel from God. In fact, we know that, uh, we know that God would use angels to speak to his people. One of them would even name himself Gabriel, right? He would, he would show, show that his name is Gabriel. Here's verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. I gotta stop right here and talk about these words because this is profound. First of all, because Gideon wasn't really a valiant warrior yet. But this is what God said to him. This is what God sees in him. This is what God foreknows he's going to do through Gideon. And he knows that he is with him. I've got good news. You're a New Testament believer. You have been born since Jesus uttered the words of the Great Commission. The final words of the Great Commission, the very last words of the Gospel of Matthew, which we as a church studied verse by verse. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Redemption Church, I can say with absolute confidence and full biblical authority as a church having exposited every word of the book of Isaiah and every word of the gospel of Matthew and seeing the fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah right there in Matthew and then concluding the gospel of Matthew with these words spoken by Jesus. Here I am, your friendly neighborhood FedEx delivery man expository preacher just telling you, I can say with full authority, I know God is with you always even to the end of the age. 
So if you're like Gideon and you're hiding out and you're timid, do you know that the Lord is with you? He's with you. And he's referred to as valiant warrior before he's really done anything particularly valiant. Aren't you grateful for someone who once saw something in you that you didn't see in yourself? You ever had those I see in you conversations? I see this in you. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the people who saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. I'm grateful to have been the bearer of such good news. That like, look, I see something in you. I see the Holy Spirit of God in you. I see a calling on your life. I see abilities. I see spiritual gifts. I see all of this coming together with perfect timing and location. I, I just see God doing something tremendous in your life. I see you being a great husband, a great father one day. I see you speaking and leading a church one day. I see you leading worship one day. I see you serving the homeless to powerful fruitfulness. Think on it. Who, who is that person who had that I see in you conversation with you? Do you remember who it was? Can you see their faces now? Are they with the Lord now? Because you're here carrying on the legacy of the fruitfulness that God began through them. But they didn't originate it. They inherited it from someone else. These I see in you conversations are generational. God knows exactly what he's gonna do through Gideon. God is timeless, he is eternal, he is divine. He already knows the ending, he's the author of the story. And so he has the authority to go to a guy who's secretly hiding out trying to thresh wheat on a wine press and call him a valiant warrior. God sees exactly what he's already decided to do through Gideon. Now imagine what that's like from Gideon's perspective. Imagine Gideon hearing that, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior, while he's secretly threshing wheat on a wine press. It's not at all what it was designed to do, and he's just scared. Imagine Gideon being like, wrong number. This is what God said, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? They said, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. Now, Gideon's question, Gideon's question is Habakkuk's question. The book of Habakkuk. It was the, it's also the question of Epicurus. And I'll bet it's some of your questions too. Because he's like, look, if the Lord is with us, okay, here's the conditional, like if the Lord is with us, right, that's your P, and then the Q, right, the, the Q comes, like, why has all this happened? Because like the P stands that, you know, God is good, and he's with us, so bad things wouldn't happen. But what's the problem here? All right, the cue is flawed. If you presuppose that the Lord being with you exempts you from suffering and difficulty, you're committing a logical fallacy. That would make sense if God said, because I'm with you, I'll protect you from all harm. God actually said the polar opposite of that. 
Jesus himself, John 16, told us that we would have great trouble in this life. Okay, so write that down, because evidently a lot of Christians don't get that. If you're modus ponens, P, then Q, logical, presuppositional, uh, propositional logic equation is flawed, you'll always misinterpret life. If you are under the impression that giving your life to Jesus is going to end your suffering and difficulty, then you have not come at it from a biblical worldview. You have come at this from a flawed worldview. You have tried to project onto the word of God something of your own making, putting your own logic and reasoning as though it was superior to the very logic of Logos himself. God never promised that you wouldn't suffer. In fact, he told you that you would. Gideon's question seems reasonable, though. It's the question that Habakkuk asks. It's the question that Epicurus asks. I'll bet it's the question that some of you ask, and I can tell you a quick story about a time that it was the question that an atheist author and I both attempted to tackle together. This writer and I were going to do one of those multiple response books where you have like a series of prompts, not too many so the book doesn't get too gigantic, you know, just like four or five basic questions about life, questions that are on everybody's heart. He would give the atheistic perspective, I would give the Christian perspective, and then I would have the chance to rebut his answer, and he would have the chance to rebut mine. That's question one. And the next question, atheist answer, Christian answer, Atheist rebuttal, Christian rebuttal. Next question. Atheist answer, Christian answer. Atheist rebuttal, Christian rebuttal. And that was the structure for the book. And the very first question was the classic colloquial theodicy question, why do bad things happen to good people? Now, of course, I objected to the premise of good people because the Christian worldview presupposes that no one's good, not even one, every one of us are a bunch of depraved lunatics. Like we're all born with this natural bent towards self-destruction. Don't press the red button. Beep, that's what we do. And so I, I was gonna object to the presupposition of good people, but what I really came at it with was Romans 8, 28. That God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That was my answer. Of course, that's all I have to say. I ran out, I, I became a pastor when I ran out of material. I, all, that I have, all that I have to say is the word of God. I have nothing of value really to contribute from my own intellect and experience. Everything that I have to say that is of value is regurgitated. It is straight out of the word of God anyway. And so that's what I was going to bring. I was going to bring the Christian worldview to bear. And so he and I agreed upon a date. We we're going to have our drafts ready. We we're going to collude everything, put it through Google Docs, have an editor go through and, and you know, uh, check the grammar and everything. We we're going to submit this to my publisher and we were going to see if it had a shot. We we're going to write up just responses to one or two questions and just see, just see if what we were writing was, was salient and was good. And I was praying that the Lord would use my writing to represent something very, very good. But here's the thing my atheist author had to back out because he was convinced that the Christian worldview's answer to that question was correct and his was wrong. We gave, we gave one another 
a month to write our responses. Mine took me a day or two. And I was just sitting around playing Minesweeper. And then a month later, he said, Jesse, I have been agonizing over this. He said he had logged so many hours and he had typed so many words and then deleted them all and typed so many words and deleted them all. He tried to rip off Ayn Rand. It was like, nah, she's full of it. Tried to rip off Aristotle. I was like, ah, that's the exact same thing as Ayn Rand. Because Ayn Rand ripped off Aristotle. And he agonized over it. He read The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins and saw that that was the exact same fallacy. No atheist ever has been able to answer this question. None. Not one of them can provide a cogent answer because not one of them can provide a cogent answer for what evil is without presupposing God. And he agonized for that full month and said, and I'm quoting you, I'm quoting this directly without one iota of embellishment. After all the hours that I spent working on this, I had convinced myself that you were right and I was wrong. And so I'm backing out of this project on the first question. This morning, right now, though he lives in the eastern time zone, he's probably at lunch having just taken his wife and two kids to church because he's a Christian. <laughs> there is no answer to this question apart from the word of God. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will suffice. And if your interpretation of that is Jesse won an argument, you've completely missed it. All I did was regurgitate Romans 8, 28. It didn't take me long. It didn't take me long. I was even listening to music while I typed. And it just came out because it's just the word of God. And it provides a cogent answer. God works all of these things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And he said, I find that answer brilliant because it means that ultimately there are no bad things. Ultimately, everything is good. Because God even uses bad things to accomplish good. The question, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened, is logically fallacious. Because it presupposes that God being with you exempts you from suffering. That was never promised. That was never stated. In fact, the polar opposite has been clearly, prima facie, repeatedly stated. Some of your Bibles render it in red letter text. This is basic, third grade, reading comprehension. God never said you wouldn't suffer. In fact, he warned you that you would. And so when you suffer... It's not evidence against God. It's evidence that your Bible's true. Now, what are you prepared to do? Do you or do you not believe that God works all of these things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose? There's even some sharp accusatory words in Gideon's accusation, aren't there? Like in, in Gideon's, sorry, in Gideon's question, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? Right? But, but now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. He believes that God has just broken his covenant and divorced himself from his people and handed them permanently over to Midian. So Gideon is bold in this regard, that he's being quite accusatory. But watch how gracious and incredibly patient 
God is with Gideon. Here's chapter six, verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. I am sending you. Dude, that is deep. I wanna talk about these words first. This is, this is such a rich single verse, okay? Go in the strength, and then what are these two words? Say it with me. You have. What? Gideon, look at you. You're sitting right here. You are my answer to your own question. I've given you strength. Go in the strength that you have. Okay, you're standing there, surrounded by weeds, holding a weed eater. And you're like, I'm just totally lost as to what to do about this. Aha! Like, do you have everything that you need? Go in the strength that you have. You already have everything you need. Go in the strength that you have and deliver Israel from the grasp of Midian. And then this is the, this is the larger answer to his question about the suffering of his people. He says, I'm sending, who is he sending Redemption Church? You. We saw this in Isaiah. As you look at the fruits of depravity of our culture, and you're like, man, what is God going to do about this rampant, murderous, genocidal, pro-abortion culture? What is he going to do? What is he going to do to speak the truth to these people? Don't they know that humans are humans? Don't they know this is innocent life that's being taken? What is God going to do to educate these people about the spiritual truth that they're blind to. What is God gonna do to take care of all of these homeless people setting up tent cities on every single median on your way into Seattle? What is God gonna do to take care of the homeless people? What is God gonna do? Here's the thing. You are what he's done about it. He's sending you. You are what he has done. You have the strength to pray. You have the strength to join our abortion clinic prayer ministry. You have the strength to do this. You have the strength to meet up with the teams that all volunteer together on Saturday mornings to feed the homeless downtown. He's sending you. You are what he has done about these things. This was God's message to Gideon. Here's 2 Peter chapter one. His divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness. This is it. He's given us everything that we need, okay? He's given us everything that we need. And times in which supplies run short, the stage is set for a miracle. And the expectation is that the people of God would be that provision. So God has given us absolutely everything that we need. Here's Here's back to Judges verse six. He said to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? So we've already seen opening encounter with the Lord, valiant warrior, I am with you. And then Gideon's immediate response is accusatory. We're not off to a good start, but so far Gideon seems to have survived this encounter. 
He said to him, please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Here's our first excuse from Gideon. Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's family. He's like, I'm the weakest member of the weakest family. But I will be with you, the Lord said to him. You will strike Midian down as if it were one man. It's powerful, right? Then he said to him, if I found favor with you, give me a sign that you are speaking with me. Do you see how dumb that is? Give me a sign that you are speaking with me. I find that dumb. First of all, he begins accusatory, and then he makes an excuse, and now he asks for a sign. I mean, like, at this point, good grief. There are other people in the Bible who would have, God would have been like, all right, that's it, dead, boom, and then lightning strikes. Right, because he's pushing back, and he's questioning, he's asking signs, he's being accusatory. But look at verse 18. Please do not leave this place until I return to you. Let me bring my gift and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. So Gideon went and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from a half bushel of flour. He placed the meat in a basket and the broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said to him, take the meat with the unleavened bread, put it on this stone and pour the broth on it. So he did that. Okay, this is Old Testament sacrificial worship. Please don't come up here and spill broth on the carpet. This is Old Testament. The angel of the Lord extended the tip of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire came up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. So he gets the sign that he asked for. When Gideon realized that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Oh no, Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace to you. Don't be afraid, for you will not die. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, the Lord is peace. It is still in Ophrah of the Abiezrites today. On that very night, the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull and a second bull, seven uh, years old, then tear down the altar of Baal that belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. Build a well-constructed altar to the Lord your God on the top of this mound. Take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah pole did as the Lord had told him. But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the city to do it in the daytime, he did it at night. All right? He's a little bit nervous. He's a little bit nervous. So this right here, the Lord is peace. This is what he's called, this, this altar. This is Yahweh Shalom. That's that, that's that name in Hebrew. That's what he's called it. And it's profound, too, because it's, it's, atop, uh, uh, it's atop a pagan altar. Now, the reason that our series is, is, is titled Failure, Lust, and Loss is that Baal worship or Baal worship, to worship these two was basically just to commit licentious sexual acts of indecency, but then package it in something pseudo-spiritual. And the Asherah pole that was cut down, this was a phallic image that he is cutting to pieces. And what's cool about the offering that he's called to make is that he's gonna take the wood that was once a pagan icon 
and then use it to fuel the fire for an offering to the one true God, making proper use of that wood once and for all. I've got a a photo to share with you guys from a time that my bride and I uh, were in Mexico. Can we show that photo real quick, please? All right, so I think this is the one where Jesse's like a little speck in the background. She got a little bit nervous because I was walking up some really jagged steps that were meant for human sacrifice after all. And she's like, if I slip one time on those steps, they're going to do what they were designed to do. I'd just rather not. So have fun up there. And obviously, like, I had to go straight to the top. It was a fascinating place. It was an incredibly important village. And it, was, it had ceremonial significance to the Aztecs. This was, uh, in, uh, this was in Progreso, Mexico. And it was a massive set of structures all built around this central pyramid. It said that there was another village, another temple, not too far from this one. But something happened. The people, the Aztecs, they were led to Jesus. And so that temple is not found anymore as a temple. The Aztecs, upon hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that they no longer had to drug adolescents and then publicly murder them and roll their bodies down these steps, they didn't have to cut their heads off anymore and collect their skulls and stack them in a cenote, an underground pool. They no longer had to do any of that because the ultimate sacrifice had been made to atone for every last one of their sins. They dismantled their Aztec temple. And they moved the stone to a nearby town. And they used the stones to build a church. And that church stands today. I find that exquisitely beautiful. My liberal friend would call that the erasure of an ancient culture. I would say, good, because that ancient culture was sacrificing people. We need to stop that if that's part of a culture. I find it redemptive that there would be blood-stained stones used to build a church to God. It was once pagan in its function, and to this day, it comprises a church building. This Asherah pole was intended for a pagan entity, but now it is used to fuel the fires of an offering that is made to God. So Gideon makes his sacrifice at night. When the men of the city got up in the morning, they found Baal's altar torn down, the Asherah pole beside it cut down, and the second bull offered up on the altar that had been built. They said to each other, who did this? After they made a thorough investigation, they said, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son. He must die because he tore down Baal's altar and cut down the Asherah pole beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead Baal's case for him? Would you save him? Whoever pleads his case will be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him plead his own case because someone tore down his altar. That day, Gideon was called Jerubal, since Joash said, let Baal contend with him because he tore down his altar. Remember this because you're going to see the name Gideon used interchangeably with Jerubal for the next three chapters. 
So when you see the name Jerubal, you're like, wait, who is that? That's Gideon. And it's because of this moment. Because his dad has come up and he's, he's made this challenge. If Baal's a god, let him fend for himself. Let him defend himself. Now remember, this pagan worship was itself a lustful act. And then look at the way that they reacted to this. They said, bring out your son. What did they say about him? He must die. People get touchy when you get in the way of their lusts. Okay? They get really, really touchy when you come between them and lust. When you start talking about repenting from sin, you start talking about like, hey, maybe don't follow all the steps it takes to conceive a child and then kill the child. Maybe don't do that. You become the bad guy who's opposed to reproductive health. The most ironic misnomer ever. When you just sit there living your Christian life and you refuse to participate in the pride parade, you become a bigot. Not because of anything that you've said, but because of what you've refused to celebrate. People get really touchy when you start getting in the way of their lusts. Gideon tore down an altar and a wooden pole, built an altar to the one true God, and for this, they moved straight to capital punishment. They moved straight to public execution. He must die. People get really, really touchy when you come between them and their lusts. So, verse 33, all the Midianites, Amalekites, and the people of the east gathered together. They crossed over the Jordan and camped in the Jezreel Valley. The Spirit of the Lord enveloped Gideon, and he blew the ram's horn, and the Abiezrites rallied behind him. These words at the beginning of verse 34 are operative for interpreting what comes next. Wow, look at this. The Spirit of the Lord did what? over Gideon, enveloped him. I mean, completely encased. There's not a part of him that wasn't covered. You could refer to this as an Old Testament baptism of the Holy Spirit. When we baptize, we completely immerse. You're covered head to toe. Every aspect of you, every aspect of you has been made new. You've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. You are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You've shared in Christ's burial. Now you share in his resurrection. And the Holy Spirit of God just covers you from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet. You are enveloped in the Holy Spirit. You are baptized in the Holy Spirit. And now here's Gideon who is enveloped, completely covered in the Holy Spirit of God. That is operative for understanding what comes next. He's filled with the Holy Spirit of God and then the very first order of business is the polar opposite of what the people of God have been doing. Do you see that? It opens up with everybody hiding, hiding their crops, hiding where they thresh their wheat, living in caves, retreating from the Midianites. And then look at what happens before the sentence is even complete in verse 34. When the Holy Spirit of God shows up and anoints a man, the very first thing he does is blow the ram's horn. It's the polar opposite. We're coming out of our caves. We're coming out of hiding. Watch out, Midianites. We're coming out. This is the Midianites' worst fear. We've seen this in our study of the Gospels. The fear mongers are the most afraid of all. 
Verse 35, he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh who rallied behind him. He also sent messengers throughout Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali who also came to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, if you will deliver Israel by me as you said, I will put a wool fleece here on the threshing floor. If dew is only on the fleece and all the ground is dry, I will know that you will deliver Israel by me as you said. And if, and that is what happened. Sometimes this is how it goes, right? And that's what happened. He asks God for a very specific sign. And then, verse 38, that's what happened. Sometimes that's how it goes. Sometimes that's how it goes. That's certainly how it went for Gideon. When he got up early in the morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung dew out of it, filling a bowl with water. I mean, he asked for a very specific sign and God fulfilled exactly the sign he requested over and abundantly. That's sufficient, right? And then Gideon was appeased, right? Nope. He asked now for the converse of that sign. Most spoiled, rotten judge I've ever seen. Good grief. All right, look, the text continues. Then... Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Let me speak one more time. Please allow me to make one more test with the fleece. Let it remain dry and the dew be all over the ground. That night, God did as Gideon requested. Only the fleece was dry and the dew was all over the ground. And that's the last sign that God gave Gideon, right? (laughs) nope, man, he is spoiled so rotten. I'm not kidding. There are missionaries who have planted churches on less than half the kind of confirmation of just one of the single signs that God gave Gideon. And then God just keeps affirming and affirming, affirming, affirming him, just saying over and over again exactly what he's going to do. Today, as New Testament believers, it does need to be pointed out. It does need to be said. There are, there are charismatic members of the Redemption Church. I may have some charismatic tendencies myself. We're like, we know, we see you preach. The charismatics are sometimes right about this. Right? Asking God for a sign. Right? They're sometimes right about this. And someone here may receive just such a Holy Spirit confirmation sign. I have seen this happen before. My second cousin planted orphanages in Haiti and Ukraine and in Kenya. A local gang profligated a drug that caused people to pass out. One of the young people in the village took this drug, passed out in the street, was run over by a car and was killed. He called me because he knew that they loved to drum and they loved to dance. And he asked me if I would be willing to come and start a drum line in conjunction with a choreographer who would start a dance team, in conjunction with a social worker who would drug test them to see that they were off this drug. And if you were clean from the drug, you could be a part of the drum line, you could be a part of the dance troupe. We called it Kitundumo, the Swahili word for thunder. That's about what we sounded like. We were not very good. But I recruited a team of 11 leaders and I taught them how to teach the kids how to do this thing. And we had, we, we had a couple hundred kids from the community all show up to be a part of this thing. 
But as we projected the initial cost, I got off the phone with my cousin when he first told me about it. All right, I was, at the time, an endorsed artist by Pearl Drums and Sabian Cymbals and Vic Firth Drumsticks. And I was like, I gotta see how much Pearl's gonna be willing to ship to Kenya for me. I gotta get as many sticks as I can from Vic Firth. And I'm probably not gonna call Sabian because they're probably not gonna give me anything anyway. But I gotta do what I can. <laughs> this is why I'm no longer on their website. <laughs> because I took about 150 grand with the gear anyway. <laughs> and they received zero back from that, so that was a bit of a bust for them. But we did start the drum line. In terms of overall cost for travel, for logistics, for shipping, for everything, I saw it was gonna cost $30,000 just to bring my team to go to Kenya to start this thing. The next day, one of the executives at Universal Studios Orlando walked into my office and said, we don't know what this is, but the Lord laid this on our hearts and slid a check for $30,000 across my desk. The next day, okay? I've seen God do this stuff. I've seen God do this stuff, okay? If you're, if you're looking at Gideon, asking God for a sign, and then God gives that sign, I mean, specifically into the letter, and then repeatedly, if you're looking at it like, yep, that's how you walk with Jesus, here's the thing. Maybe the worst thing that could happen to you is you get the very first sign that you ask for because you'll expect nothing but that treatment every single decision you make for the rest of your life. But this is a miracle recorded in scripture precisely because it's miraculous, which makes it conspicuous, which makes it significant, which makes it worthy of scripture. What we know, however, is that you can also abuse this approach. In fact, Luke eleven twenty nine. as the crowds were increasing, he began saying, this generation is an evil generation. It, what is the word right here? Say it with me, demands a sign. But no sign will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. God is absolutely able. It is absolutely his prerogative to give you a miraculous sign. I've seen him do it in my life more than once. But if you're expecting every single decision you ever make to be confirmed by a miracle from God and you refuse to take a step unless he does something in your life, or if you're my skeptical friend and you're like, I'll only believe in you, God, if you work one of those Gideon-style miracles right now, watch out because you've just demanded a sign from God. Consider the humility of Gideon who's like, please don't be angry with me. I just got to speak one more time. And then consider the hostility of the Pharisees who had already seen multiple signs and then demanded more. Do not abuse the Gideon precedent and expect God to miraculously confirm every single thing that you ever have to decide in your life. Here's what Romans 12, one and two says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is a spiritual act of worship. This is how we worship in the New Testament. You are the sacrifice, but you get to survive worship, which is nice. You get to live through worship. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may, what is this word right here, Redemption Church? Say it for me. Discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. That means that you discern, that you 
Use what God has given you. He's given you everything that you need for life and godliness. We saw that in 2 Peter 1. You use the strength that you have, the intellect that you have, the information that you have. You make a decision. Fill with the Holy Spirit of God in a worshipful state. Do not make massive life decisions if it feels like you've walked a million miles away from the Holy Spirit of God. Get right back into the middle. Confess whatever sin is there. Do not get off your knees Do not use the towel to soak up the puddle of tears on your carpet until you know that you know that you know that you are at the epicenter of fellowship with the Holy Spirit of God. Then you discern. Then you make, here's what Philippians 1, 9 through 11. This is what Paul prayed for the church at Philippi. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of, say this word with me, Redemption Church, what is it right here? Say it, discernment. That's how we make decisions as Christians today. Not like pagans, not drawing tarot cards, okay? God is able to give you a sign, but if he doesn't, you've got discernment. You've been given a fully functional brain. And if you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God, you're able to discern what is the will of God. Don't overly mystify this. Don't pretend to be some weird Wiccan when choosing what college to go to. Okay? Don't act like some odd diviner, okay? Like some witch on a Tim Burton movie trying to figure out God's will for your life. It's this thing called discernment. So, so that you may approve the things that are superior. Okay, our, our task force, our building task force, we use, the, we use the example all the time of jiggling the door handle. Okay, they look, you, can't, you look at a door and you can't tell whether it's locked or unlocked until you do what? You try it. Some translations render Romans 12, 1 and 2, test and approve. What does it mean to test? That you try. You try. Is God able to give you a divine sign from heaven to show you exactly what his will is like he did for Gideon? I mean, you knew the answer to that based on the very first few words. Is God able to? Yes. But he doesn't always do that. And so what do you do for the remainder of all the decisions in your life? Use your discernment. Fill with the Holy Spirit so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless into the day of Christ. That's critical. If you've got sin, just like, I mean, up to your neck in your life and you're trying to make major life decisions, watch out. You're you're definitely not pure and blameless in that regard. And you definitely held the Holy Spirit's fellowship in your life at arm's length, which means you're definitely conforming to the pattern of this world. You've not been renewed by the transforming of your mind. In fact, your thinking has been corrupt by your depravity. It's been influenced. You are biased unto sin. So repent drastically and brutally, violently. Get violent with your sin. Repent at all cost. Come before the Lord. Be filled with this Holy Spirit. And then discern what is best. And if God wills, he'll confirm it with a miraculous sign just like he did for Gideon. But the New Testament model for decision-making describes spirit-filled discernment. That you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness. You can also tell if you're making the right decisions if you're actually bearing fruit, actually producing results. Faith without such deeds is useless, James says. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, Look at what comes next. Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the troops who were with him got up early and camped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Moreh in the valley. 
The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, I saved myself. Look at that. The Lord said, you've got too many troops. You have too many troops. And what God knew would happen is that they would say, I saved myself. Gallons of ink have been used to write commentaries speculating as to why, what those of you who are students of the Bible, why what comes next comes next. Winnowing down the army, down to just 300 men. Okay, if they get down and they lap up the water like a dog, they're cut from the army. But if they kneel down, they use their hand to scoop it up, that means that they can see and they're using tactics. They're good, they're tacticians, they're, they're, they're good warriors. That's why they were chosen. No, no. No, it misses the point entirely. Give the squids their ink back because this is why God did it. Those 300 men knelt down to drink because they were the ones chosen by God. Do you see? This is why. Verse two is why. You have too many troops and you have so many troops that you, you have a tactical advantage and it's quite reasonable that by a pragmatic standard you could look back on the victory I'm about to give you and say, yeah, we accomplished that victory ourselves. So I'm going to winnow your troops down. Here's verse three. Now announce to the troops, whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the troops turned back, but 10,000 remained. Wow. Okay, over two-thirds of them are all like, yeah, I'm scared. All right, so go home, scaredy cats. But you've got 10,000. Look at verse four. Then the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many troops. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. If I say to you, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So he brought the troops down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those who lapped with their hands to their mouths was 300 men, and all the rest of the troops knelt to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped the hand of the Midianites over you, but everyone else is to go home. Here's why these 300 are better than the 300 of Leonidas. These guys actually win. Ha! That's your 300. Bam! So Gideon sent all the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300, uh, the 300 troops who took the provisions and their ram's horns. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That night the Lord said to him, get up and attack the camp, for I have handed it over to you. And then look at this. God makes an accommodation for Gideon that I've never seen anywhere else. He, is, he coddles Gideon more than any other leader I've ever seen. But if you are afraid, to, he actually makes a proviso here. But if you are afraid to attack the camp, go down to Pura, uh, go, go down with, with, with Pura, your servant. Listen to what they say, and then you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So God even made a proviso. He's like, first of all, you can just go right now. But if you're scared, do this instead. So what does Gideon do? <laughs> so he went down to the camp with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the troops who were in the camp. <laughs> he took the proviso. 
Now the Midianites, Amalekites, and all the people of the east had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts, and their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon arrived, there was a man telling his friend about a dream. Who do you think gave that guy that dream? God's at work here. He said, listen, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, struck a tent, and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down so that it collapsed. His friend answered, this is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has handed the entire Midianite camp over to him. And then Gideon's like, ooh, writing this down. (laughs) When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to Israel's camp and said, get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. Wow. I just finished a week-long camp at the rock school that I teach at. I'm spoiled rotten because I've got some students. I I only teach students who are at the, the performance track. That's the highest level of the school. And so they're ready to get out there and record and perform, and they perform live. And you'll see them around town, 4th of July and things like that. And you'll see them in parades and things like that. And so those are my students that I'm used to. They get a lesson a week with a really, really well-qualified instructor, and then they're in my band that I teach. And so I'm used to these kids who can hear a song, and you can hear it twice, and just kind of noodle around for a second, and then play it upon the third time of ever having heard it. And if they can't play it right away, they will go home and they will practice really, really, really hard. This camp was different. This camp, I can tell, there were moms and dads who signed their kid up for the camp, And when the paperwork asked, does your child have at least this level of experience at this instrument, they were like, yes, he's an expert. He's absolutely phenomenal. Whatever it takes to get this kid out of my house this summer, please. And so then I inherit this child for this week of camp. And I'm like, all right, cool. Let's let's play some ACDC. And the kid doesn't know what a bass drum is. And we've got to perform on Friday. And so I'm like, okay, let's water this way down for you. By the way, these are called drumsticks. Write that down. All right, and we're playing the most simple thing we possibly can. It's just way too much. It's way too much because clearly, like, mom and dad didn't just embellish. They just straight up lied. Like, this kid has never heard music before, and now we got to perform on Friday. I'm spoiled rotten to my performance track kids who will, like, hear Dream Theater and be like, oh, got it, and then play it. And now there's, here's this other kid, and it's like, dude, like, you're not wearing shoes today. This is bad, and you got to perform today. you got to perform on Friday. So I water it down even more. I water it down even more. It gets to the point where it's like, look, please, please, God, help this child just, like, hit something with a stick. Like, he's missing the drum. How do you miss a drum that's 16 inches across? You're sitting right next to it. God, give me patience. Please give me patience. And you know what's funny is, like, that's how God gives you patience. (laughs) He gives you a kid that can't hit a drum he's sitting next to. All right, and so we just water it down even more and make it as easy as we possibly can, as easy as we possibly can. And then finally, at the end of it, he's like, he's like you know what? I can't do this. Can you just play this song for me? And so I'm like, okay, get up. <laughs> and then I just played the song. I feel like that's what's happening here. I feel like there are people who can just receive mostly radio silence from God and a clear sense one time, God's calling me to do this. And then they will go like spiritual camels a thousand miles without water. And then there are those of us who are way more needy. 
And we need sign after sign after sign after miracle after confirmation after wise counsel after sign after sign after sign. Like, God, if you could please put big giant neon arrows that, that point to the next step I'm supposed to take. Okay, got that one. Okay, where's my, where's my left foot go, God? I'm completely lost. Help me. And then the giant sign says, put your left foot right there, stupid. And you're like, okay, got it. And like, this is how you live life, right? I get what it is to depend upon him for your every step. But if you're not willing to take a step that you can't see, you're not living by faith. If you're not willing to risk anything, if you have zero endurance, you're not ready for the spiritual marathon. You're not ready for the spiritual half marathon. The spiritual 10K seems like too much to you. The 5K, that's for those weird extra credit Christians. Would you buck up already? All right, come to a place of spiritual maturity. Go from the milk to the meat. Take a risk. Do something of which you're not certain for once and then see God meet you there on the other side. Be sure of what you hope for, certain of what you do not see. This is what I've experienced walking with Christ myself because I used to be Totally dependent upon sign, 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 sign. And then when I was in college, the Lord weaned me off of that. And it was time to stand up. Okay, let's see you actually have some discipline in your life, Jesse. Are you gonna read your Bible even though I don't give you an emotional experience every time you do? Are you gonna faithfully attend church even when the band sounds bad? That was a testing of my faith. Are you gonna pray to me even though it doesn't feel like Christmas morning every time you pray like it did every time you prayed throughout middle school and high school? I had to buck up, I had to stand up. All right, I had to test the Lord. I had, I, had to, I had to trust the Lord in his radio silence and learn spiritual discipline for the first time in my life, something that will come in handy later on. So here is, here is Gideon having been coddled, having had the Lord just sit down and play the drum part for him. Okay, it's been watered down, it's been reaffirmed over and over and over again, so much so that it's just, it, it's, no one has ever been given so many blaringly clear signs, and yet still, he was reluctant, he needed more, but remember, he's covered with the Spirit of God, which means that these signs weren't just for him, they're for the people. Remember the context? This is the era of the judges. Faith was in very short supply in this, this day. In many respects, you can actually kind of look at Gideon as a redux version of Moses leading the people of Israel, but during the time of the judges. All right, God, at one point in Luke chapter 1, verse 18, we've seen people be told by God that they're going to receive a miracle and then they just ask a seemingly reasonable question. Look at how differently, look at how differently God handled Zechariah than he did Gideon. Right, God told Zechariah, I'm going to work a miracle. Okay, and then, you know, uh, Zechariah asks a perfectly reasonable question. Okay, like, how can I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. And then the very next statement is, listen, you will become silent and unable to speak. Like he asked just one question and then God was like, shut up. You can't talk anymore for like a long time. That, that was how God handled Zechariah. 
I mean, he showed Gideon sign after sign after sign, and Gideon's like, yeah, but what about this? And then, and then God's like, okay, here's what you can do, but if you're still scared, you can do this. And so Gideon does that, and then he goes, and he finally sees another sign. We've spent a chapter and a half coddling Gideon's faith, showing everybody, reaffirming over and over again, yes, I'm with you, I'm with you, yes, I'm with you, I'm stinking with you, I'm with you! And then finally he's like, okay, I think I'm willing to do something now. And then meanwhile, look at, look at, Poor Zechariah. He's in the Holy of Holies. He's already terrified of dropping dead in the very presence of God. He makes a sacrifice. An angel shows up and says, you and your elderly wife are going to have a child. And he's like, wait a minute. And then he's like, shut up. You're, <laughs> you're mute now. I mean, like, he doesn't even finish asking the question. It's, by the way, a reasonable question. But this is how God handled Zechariah. Was there any coddling with Zechariah? None. There was instant, harsh discipline. For Zechariah, would you consider that God works with each of us differently? Okay, that God works with each of us differently. Don't covet the seeming outpouring of miraculous signs that somebody else has in their life. It's expected that you would be more like Zechariah, that you would trust, you'd walk forward in faith, exercising good discernment. Judges, then he divided the 300 men into three companies and gave each of the men a ram's horn in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside it in the other hand. Watch me, he said to them, and do what I do. When I come to the outpost of the camp, do as I do. When I and everyone with me blow our ram's horns, you are also to blow your ram's horns all around the camp. Then you will say, for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the 300 men who were with him went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. They blew their ram's horns and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. The three companies blew their ram's horns and shattered their pitchers. They held their torches in their left hands and their ram's horns to blow in their right hands. And they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each Israelite took his position around the camp and the entire Midianite army began to run and they cried out as they fled. When Gideon's men blew their 300 ram's horns, the Lord caused the men of the whole army to turn on each other with their swords. All right, here it is. We saw this in the story of Deborah in Judges chapter four. And I wanna make sure that you see it in the story of Gideon in Judges chapter seven, okay? First of all, this part right here, this little addendum that Gideon added on. Oh, and by the way, I want credit for this too. God has like shown him sign after sign after sign after confirmation. And now he wants credit for it too. That was never prescribed. That was never part of the deal. That's added on by Gideon. Just watch, it's gonna come back to bite him and his family and his legacy in all Israel later. That tendency to crave some of the glory for himself. Each Israelite took his position in the camp and then it is in fact the Lord. It is in fact the Lord who caused the men and the whole army to turn on each other with their swords. God is the one who gets the credit for the victory here. God is the one who wins the day. They fled to Acacia House in the direction of Zerarah as far as the border of Abel, Mehaloah, near Tabath. Then the men of Israel were called from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh, and they pursued 
the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim with his message, come down to intercept the Midianites and take control of the water courses ahead of them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out and they took control of the water courses as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. They captured Oreb and Zeb, the two princes of Midian. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. These guys named things after themselves and that's where they die. Congrats, good job, there's your grave. While they were pursuing the Midianites, they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. Now, God called this reluctant judge forward, showed him that he was with him and dispatched him. And to great effect, what comes next in chapter eight, which we don't have time for today, is Gideon's downfall. It's Gideon's downfall. I wanna close by asking that the spirit of the Lord would envelop you as he did Gideon. That you as, if you're a Christian, you would apply this text by knowing that the Lord God is with you. Always, even to the very end of the age. And that if you're my skeptical friend, and you've been asking God for miraculous signs like your Gideon, you would come to see the fallacy of this. No, you're asking Jesus for signs like the Pharisees did. You've got to step forward in faith, being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. If you need prayer to discern God's will for your life, I hope God does give you one of these really cool signs like he has. But if he doesn't, I pray that today's the day you would begin to learn that discernment that is described in the New Testament. It could be that God's not gonna coddle you the way he did Gideon. He may have an expectation of you like he did for Zechariah. That is, you know what I said. You know what the Bible says. You know what is best. You have discernment. And so that you, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, would make the decision that the Lord has laid on your heart because that is his will for you. Knowing that no matter what happens, failure or success, victory or defeat, God works all of these things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Would you stand with us as we close, we pray and we sing. I wanna pray on your behalf if you're my skeptical friend, would you pray with me now if the Lord is drawing on your heart? God, I am convicted for the first time in my life. I feel it. I see this story of you giving your people victory. I see you showing sign after sign to someone, but it's one of your servants, one of your judges. I covet that, God. I want that kind of fellowship with you. I've gotten it backwards, God. I've been asking for signs so that I would believe in you. But God, it's not until I believe in you that I have any chance of ever experiencing anything like what Gideon did. So God, forgive me for every last one of my sins. I believe you, God. I believe you when you said you sent your one and only son. That if I believe in him, I would not die, but have everlasting life. I confess I have sinned. I've fallen short of the glory of God. I confess that the wages of that sin is death. But I believe the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no way I can come to God the Father except through Jesus. Filled with the Holy Spirit of God. I confess with my mouth, 
Jesus is Lord. Redemption Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. I've seen the only sign that I need, Jesus' resurrection. I know he resurrected because his spirit is in me right now. That's all the signs I need. God, would you save this soul, anoint this life, have your will done through me. God, I lift up Christians in the room who are dependent upon signs and wonders and aren't receiving them. I pray that they would learn discernment. I pray for Christians who have never experienced to do anything like what you did in Gideon's life. Would you show them, God? Holy Spirit, would you pour out upon our church in that regard? Would you be honored, Lord, by the way we, in which we discern your will? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.